Pastor Nathaniel Urshan has a Bachelor of Arts in Human Development from Wilson University, where he received, um, and also, excuse me, from Hope International University, and then from Wilson University, a Master of Arts in Christian Leadership. Uh, Pastor Urshan has spent 15 years of his life founding and pastoring a church in Fort Myers, Florida, uh, followed by five years uh, speaking, itinerant evangelistic speaking around the nation, and then one year living in Honduras and planting a church there. He's also the co-founder of the Ignite Conference and a contributing writer to several magazines and several other entrepreneurial business initiatives to advance the kingdom of God. Pastor Urshan is now pastor of Heritage Christian Life Center in South Haven, Mississippi, and he's here today to speak to us about the topic of baptism in Jesus' name. Please help me welcome Pastor Nathaniel Urshan. Thank, thank you, Brother Holmes, and greetings to everyone. Um, as was stated, I am going to be speaking on Jesus' name baptism, the biblical mode of baptism, a subject that is very near and dear to my heart and is a central tenet in the apostolic faith. So what I'm going to try to do is read and then as I read towards the end of the section that I am reading, I'm going to elaborate. I've tried to fit everything into 3,000 words. It was far too exhaustive a topic to do that adequately, but um, I'll be adding some things as I go along to what I'm talking about. <clears throat> so, starting on page two, let's begin. A doctrinal issue that has been a source of hope and truth for many Christians for the last two millennia, and a source of perplexity and suspicion for others is the teaching on baptism in the name of Jesus. Occupying center stage in the history of the early church and avidly contended for by the apostles, it has been relegated to a curious footnote by many who fail to see the significance of this great truth. The new birth that was revealed to Nicodemus contained the two elements of being born of the water and of the spirit. This water-spirit tandem is woven or stamped in template form throughout the Old Testament and continued into the New Testament. With the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the influx of Samaritan believers, the conversion of Cornelius with his household in Acts chapter 10, and the furthering of the experience of John's disciples serving as Scripture's historical blueprint, this research paper will strive to demonstrate that the biblical modality of baptism in the name of Jesus Christ was and still is the only biblical pattern given to mankind. The historical record of baptism, after centuries of intense debate, and I could add in there even war, there remains little doubt as to how the early church baptized. Textually, Scripture is quite clear that it was always administered in the name of Jesus Christ or another variation of this phrasing. And while scholars have wrangled with what baptism in the name of Jesus means, the book of Acts is the only divinely inspired historical recording of baptism in the New Testament. In each of the premier five baptismal accounts, it was always administered in Jesus' name. 
there are other references to it, but these are the ones that are primarily referenced. This mode of baptism reflects the straightforward language directly received from the apostles. Peter baptized in Jesus' name, as did Philip, Ananias, and Paul. If we are to be the New Testament church built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, we should do likewise. I'll add to this portion, <clears throat> and I believe other speakers are going to be addressing this more in depth as we go along, but the static nature of truth is an integral part of doctrine. Truth simply doesn't change. And so, at some point in time, the idea that truth could evolve entered into the picture, that baptism could morph. It could morph from immersion to sprinkling, which I'll deal with in short manner, that the wording could be changed, and there are several references. I did not include them in this paper, but they're very easily pulled up, that that religion has readily admitted that it was changed from what one writer called the primitive church. I've never liked that word. I've always felt that primitive, inferred ignorance. And it also infers that now we are more enlightened, which presents us with some logical problems. The first being truth doesn't evolve. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not possible that we get smarter the further from Jesus we get. And there is no way that we today are more equipped or are more enlightened than the men who walked with him. So everything we need arises from that first group of men who walked and talked with Jesus on earth. How they baptized is the premier example. And to call them primitive is to call us enlightened and leads us to uh, the fallacious idea that we get smarter the further from Jesus that we get. It also leads us to the idea that there are several evolutions of doctrine. So baptism would go through evolutions. And as we move along here, you'll see that the idea of monotheism and the numerical oneness of God is intricately woven through the doctrine of Jesus' name, baptism. So with the advent of the doctrine of the Trinity came an emphasis on baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And that strong monotheism is the paradigm that we really need to look at the Scripture with. We need to look at it through those that lens. That's what we need to do. So the historical record of baptism is found in the book of Acts is the only reliable account that we can look to. And 
that leads me to the post-apostolic writing here at the bottom of page three. Many post-apostolic writers also refer to baptism with surviving writings showing a trend to baptize using the name of Jesus, particularly in the first century on into the second century. In the Shepherd of Hermas, for before a man receives the name of the Son of God, he is ordained unto death. But when he receives that seal, he is freed from death and assigned unto life. Now that seal is the water of baptism, into which men go down under the obligation unto death, but come up appointed unto life. References to the name of the Son of God, references to the name of Jesus, are located in several early church writings. The Bauer et al. lexicon from 1979 notes that the Christian receives this name at his baptism. Before a man bears the name of God's Son, which is given him at baptism, he is dead. Many other post-apostolic writers spoke of baptism in Jesus' name, including Justice, Justin, Eusebius, and Irenaeus. While scholars espousing the phrase, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, attempt to insert its usage as early as 150 A.D., the first indisputable, datable reference to the standard Trinitarian formula is A.D. 215. So close to 200 years go by where strong evidence shows that it was applied in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism was applied in that name. Using post-apostolic writers to gain a sense of orthodoxy is treacherous work. Appealing to these writings runs the risk of viewing Scripture through the lens of Greek Hellenization, inevitably leading away from direct biblical evidence and serves to corrupt authentic apostolic thought. It does not carry the same weight as Scripture and can only be used sparingly for some sense of context. Even that must be cautiously relied upon due to the intensive, destructive search-and-destroy missions conducted by inquisitional authorities and other misguided religious zealotry. The tendency to promote a viewpoint that was espoused by the state of Rome and other later Protestant leaders, as well as the destruction of heretical, quote, end quote, opposing perspectives is well documented. And this sweeping historical revision eliminated much of the known oppositional writing and ensured the survival of scholarship that was sympathetic to existing orthodoxy. The goal was not, in many cases, the propagation of objective truth. Rather, it was the promotion of prevailing religious dogma and the suppression of any dissenting voices at any cost. Appealing to post-apostolic writing to establish doctrine allows severely compromised textual evidence to be elevated to nearly the same level as the Word of God. In most cases, it was handpicked by existing religious authorities and is soaked in the blood of whoever was currently deemed heretical. At best, post-apostolic writing can provide a vague feeling for the climate in the centuries following Jesus and the apostles, and at worst, Worst, it is a truncated, violent editing of the historical record of the early church. <clears throat> Many people will make the mistake of reading the book of Acts, seeing the obvious, indisputable, divinely inspired word of God and the fact that the apostles always baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then, 
the mistake is made to then look to church history that has been revised so heavily and view that baptismal record through that lens. And it's a disingenuous way to do it because both um, Roman thought, Greek Hellenized thought, is then superimposed over a monotheistic structure. And people find themselves using a pluralistic view of the Godhead as the lens through which they read the book of Acts, dismissing the actual words that are spoken and the fact that the name of Jesus is paramount in the book of Acts. Acts 4.12 Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 2.38, Acts 4.12, Acts 8.14-16, Acts 10.44-48, Acts 19.1-6, all strongly speak of baptism in the name of Jesus or the supremacy of the name of Jesus. Acts 22, uh, Ananias' instruction to Paul to arise and wash away thy sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. That is the only biblically, divinely inspired record we have. And, and to appeal to other sources to modify that or to try to interpret that is a grave error. And it's disingenuous. Because not only will religious authorities look through that lens, another problem that happens is that they'll pick and choose what they want to believe and what they want to discard. They will support the reading of post-apostolic documents to a point, but disavow it later when it doesn't fit their particular ideology. And so there is a a picking and a choosing that goes on that when it's convenient to try to combat the doctrine of the baptism in Jesus' name, they will appeal to post-apostolic writers. But when it comes to other things that, that they want to disavow or to distance themselves from, they'll say, we're not part of that, we're Protestant, or we're, we're this faith, faith or that faith. Um, and you can't have it both ways. And there's a de facto elevation to the same authority as scripture when a person does that so to understand the doctrine of baptism in Jesus name and its essentiality today it's important for us to look to the Bible as the sole authority of the power of the name of Jesus Christ <clears throat> page 5 baptism is part of obeying the gospel um, Dr. Bomeister did a great job of describing the death, the burial, and the resurrection in the 1 Corinthians 15 account. That's the context that we'll look at this next portion in. How exactly does one obey the gospel? Paul told the Thessalonican church that Christ would come with the angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The apocalyptic imagery is vivid. The admonition is clear. We are to obey the gospel. The clearest instance where the gospel is spelled out is 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. It's described as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
one obeys this when they obey Acts 2.38. Repentance, water baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost is the act of obeying the gospel. We die in repentance, we are buried in baptism, and we are resurrected when we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Paul promises the church at Rome that if we identify with Christ in this fashion, we will be included later in the first resurrection. Acts 2.38 then is a microcosm of a future radical apocalyptic event where in addition to spiritually being resurrected by presently obeying the gospel, we will realize a later fulfillment both spiritually and physically. The resurrection at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 is preceded by identification with Christ in obeying the gospel, i.e. obeying Acts 2.38. This is an organic interpretation steeped in the vivid, metaphoric, and apocalyptic language of the first century church, and it's far removed from the later corruptions of infant baptism, sale of indulgences, and other such erroneous teaching that evolved over the millennia. Now, I'll be talking a little bit more about the microcosm of the resurrection, but baptism is an integral part of obeying the burial part. Jesus Christ dies, He is buried, and he is resurrected from the dead. That thematic element is played out repeatedly in both the Old Testament and the New Testament when Jesus goes down into the River Jordan and he is baptized in water and the Holy Ghost descends in the form of a dove upon him He's not showing the world an example of the Trinity. That's looking at the manifestation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost through the lens of centuries and even millennia of religious dogma. What he's modeling is the born of the water and the born of the Spirit paradigm. I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. I'm setting the precedent. I am giving you the template. If I do this... You do this. And so, his command to Nicodemus to be born of the water and to be born of the Spirit, his Jordan experience with John baptizing him, it's very interesting that when he came up out of the water and the Holy Ghost descended upon him like a dove, the Bible says that the heavens were opened. Heaven opens for people who are born of the water and the Spirit. And they remain closed Heaven remains closed without that experience. Baptism is part of obeying the gospel. Page six, the mode of baptism. There's little doubt that baptism was was performed by full immersion in water in the early church. Since truth does not evolve or change with time, it is still the only mode of baptism. Baptism that included sprinkling did not become common until just before the Renaissance, Writing as to how orthodoxy evolved over the centuries, John Cunningham notes that change leads to change. Immersion was the only mode of baptism in the apostolic church. No other would have been understood. But when baptism no longer immediately followed conversion, when it was frequently deferred till death was near, immersion in such a case was impossible. When infant baptism became common, the necessity for some relaxation of the rule became still more pressing. 
You could not take a dying man from his bed nor a sickly child from his mother's lap and plunge it into cold water. Here was the first beginning of what were afterwards called clinical baptisms. Baptisms accommodated to the babe of a day old and to the sick and the dying. Scripture supports immersion in baptism. Firstly, because baptism is a burial. In describing what happens at baptism, Paul states, Romans chapter 6, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. The act of baptismal immersion is inextricably linked to Christ's burial. And Paul further emphasizes this point by calling it planted together in the likeness of his death. The fact that we are immersed is directly linked to the likeness of Jesus Christ's burial, his death and his burial. To be planted, verse 7, and buried strongly identifies with immersion and with him infers that it is with Christ himself. This further serves to distance the original church's practice from the later trine form of baptism adopted with the emerging doctrine of the Trinity that would be formalized into orthodoxy at Nicaea. Paul is clear. We are baptized with him, not with them. Rather than being baptized into a multi-person philosophical construct of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, them, we are buried with Jesus Christ, him. Several other instances support immersion. John the Baptist baptized at Anon because there was much water there. Jesus came up out of the water. And both Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch did as well. Interestingly, the heavens opened up over Jesus Christ when he was baptized. The Spirit descended upon him. In his quest to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus served as our template to both be baptized and to receive the Holy Spirit. This is in keeping with his words to Nicodemus that we are to be born of water and the Spirit. If our master deems it necessary to follow this pattern, how much more should we? I'll speak of the microcosm of the resurrection shortly. Let's move to the baptismal formula. Baptism was always performed, quote, in the name of Jesus, end quote, in the name of the Lord or some similar derivation. Even the terminology in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost places the emphasis on the singular name of Jesus Christ. If speaking the name of Jesus is unnecessary, in baptism, then it follows that no oral invocation may be valid, including the later interpolation in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It is clear from contemporary usage that name was an ancient synonym for person. Parallels, moreover, from the colloquial Greek of the time show that the expression in the name was itself widely used, especially in solemn or formal connections and with special reference to proprietorship. This appeal may refer specially to the invocation of the name by the candidate. This then sealed the reception of the candidate into the holy community by invoking the fair name of the Lord Jesus upon his head. That was written by Alfred Plummer. Martin Luther noted that the original form of baptism in the early church was conducted in Jesus' name. 
Others, again, pedantic triflers, condemn the use of the words, I baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ, although it is certain that the apostles used this formula in baptizing as we read in the Acts of the Apostles. In addition to Luther, Ulrich Zwingli recognized this phrase to be used at baptism, and the more recent scholar F.F. Bruce also conceded this fact. When it comes to the Great Commission, when one examines the Great Commission, they will find that Jesus' command to make disciples is always accompanied by the name of Jesus Christ and explicitly demands baptism or strongly infers it. While both Matthew and Mark speak of baptism, Luke and John reference remission of sin, which Peter ties to baptism in Acts 2.38. Matthew's words should be viewed in the context of and reconciled with Acts 2.38, 8.16, 10.48, and 19.5. That is an observation made by Beasley and Murray. The singular usage of the word name does not point to three names of God, but rather to the one saving name that the apostles used time and again. It then follows that Matthew 28, 19, that's where they baptized in the name. Jesus makes the statement to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Be understood with these scriptures providing the context that the name used in baptism is Jesus. The Great Commission teaches us to baptize believers in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Matthew 28, 19, that repentance and remission of sins would be in the name of Christ, Luke 24, 47, that we are to baptize and that signs would be administered in my name, Mark 16, 16 to 17, and that sins would be remitted and life given through Jesus' name, John 20, 23, and verse 31. In each case, The common theme is the name. It's worth noting that these commissioned scriptures are parallel accounts. They're the same event being observed by different men. And so each one of them writes from the perspective of their own observation. And the one unifying theme of them all is the name, the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus as an oral invocation, when the apostles obeyed the great commission and prayed for people, cast out devils and baptized, they invoked the name of Jesus. Peter and John's encounter with the lame man at the gate beautiful illustrates this well. Then Peter said, it's important to note this was orally invoked, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. James spoke of that worthy name by the which ye are called. And Luke quoted Peter when he said, His name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong. With reference to the lame man that was healed. Both passages describe the oral invocation of Jesus' name. I'll read a portion of scripture now. Let me add this. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 21. There's an interesting dynamic when it comes to the invocation of the name of Jesus. The idea of in the name is a theme repeated. It's not just in reference to baptism, but it's used all throughout Scripture. And 
an interesting usage is found when you bless in the name. What was commanded in the book of Deuteronomy and followed through in the book of Numbers. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 5. And the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near. For them the Lord thy God hath chosen to minister unto him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word shall every controversy and every stroke be tried. Now we have examples of this in scripture, most notably Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them. Notice the oral invocation of the name, the name the Lord that they used. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel and I will bless them. So the invocation of the name of the Lord is given and they are commanded to speak it over the person. And that would be how his name would be pronounced in blessing. That concept of in the name carries throughout many different examples. This is but one of them. Back to page 9. Jesus, rather, some have suggested that ice to onoma in the name of simply means to do things by the authority of Jesus Christ. By reducing these accounts to simply operating in the authority of Jesus Christ, people feel comfortable rejecting the plain, straightforward reading of Scripture. And it's actually a newer argument. Alexander Campbell, one of the forerunners of the Church of Christ, taught that we have most explicit proof that God forgives sins for the namesake of His Son or when the name of Jesus Christ is named upon us in immersion. And though many disciples of the Restoration Movement now claim that the use of this phrase simply means by the authority of history demonstrates that their founders held starkly different views. When Jesus spoke of those who would deceive others in the last days, he said, many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. If in the name means by the authority of, Jesus would then be saying that deceivers were coming by his authority and deceiving many. This is, of course, not what is meant. He means that false teachers would actually invoke his name as the apostles did, but would use it to bring many into error. From these examples, it seems clear that we are to orally invoke the name of Jesus Christ when fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, I'm coming to a part here that I've entitled Shadow and Type, and I want to provide some context for that. <clears throat> the Western educated mind looks at knowledge and learning in a vastly different way than the ancient Middle Eastern mind did. They didn't view the Bible as a textbook, but it was the most complete and profound vehicle of delivering God's mind to man 
And in God's choice of delivering it in that fashion, he employed every literary device that you can imagine. It's not simply a didactic, linear approach. That's great for building airplanes and automobiles, but it can't change a human heart. And it can't bring divine inspiration to man. And so to view it through the lens of a Western educated mind has caused people to overlook some of the greatest tools that the apostles used to preach the gospel. And rather than just choosing pet scriptures that seem to support one view, there's this amazing literary device that they used. One word that we would use today in, in our English culture is metaphor. We would use the word metaphor. It's a way of painting a picture. The Hebrews were forbidden to make graven images and replicas of living creatures lest they fall into idolatry. So their words became their images. It's a very pictorial language. And the apostles used that powerfully to teach concepts. Baptism being one of those themes. And usually shadow and type is shuffled aside. And it's a mistake because the apostles used it. Paul used it. Peter used it. And knowledge and the deification of knowledge leads to mockery. It leads to being puffed up. It leads to looking down on things that are divine in origin. It's the very thing the apostles fought against with the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it's alive and well today. And to view the scriptures from just an academic perspective is to miss the richness and the texture of what they were conveying. So with that in mind, now let me offer another caveat. You have to be very careful with shadow and type. I don't mean just superimposing whatever a person believes fits because you can imagine anything you want to and superimpose it on the Bible. I'm talking about biblically sanctioned references that Paul used, that Peter used to teach baptism in Jesus' name and other topics. So I'm careful not to go too far the other way as well because you can abuse it and you can come up with crazy things when you're trying to teach doctrine. So with that said, one often overlooked and marginalized perspective in Scripture is that of shadow and type. Though Peter's command to be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, would seem sufficient to induce baptism as a practice, many argue that this is not what is meant by the passage in Acts 2.38. To base the bulk of our conclusions on westernized thought pattern and modern textual study methodology is to miss the ancient writers divinely inspired meaning. And though usually lumped into the realm of superstition and pseudo-scholarship, the apostles vigorously used typology and ancient metaphor to convey nuanced teaching that linear didactic teaching failed to communicate completely. While a direct command is often explained away after two millennia of philosophical meandering and Hellenized ob obfuscation, a simple metaphoric picture of God's purpose can help every reader 
in every era and culture to see the importance of the teaching. In short, both Peter and Paul felt that metaphor was an adequate paintbrush to illustrate exactly how baptism looked and was applied. Peter makes the case that baptism is comparable to Noah, and Paul likens it to Moses and the Exodus. Paul proclaims that these teachings are our in-samples. The Greek word is tupos, which means a die, a stamp, or a model, and are for our admonition. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 21, and 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 11. Rather than endlessly argue as to whether or not baptism is essential for salvation, the die has already been cast in metaphor. With the template stamped in the Old Testament, the water spirit baptismal fulfillment organically arises in the new. Let me pause here and let me give an example that people can relate to. <clears throat> I can remember receiving instructions for putting things together that did not have pictures. And holiday times would come. I would be putting together a bicycle or I would be putting together some such thing for my children. Without pictures, it is exceedingly, an exceedingly sad affair. Um, it is left open to interpretation. There are 25 interpretations. Uh, do you rotate it this far? Does this go? And there's always invariably a few extra parts left over. <laughs> and so manufacturers, and I'm giving a, a, a modern analogy to what I'm trying to portray in Scripture. Manufacturers know this, so not only will they give written instructions, they will give blowout diagrams that not only tell you how in the writing and the text, but they will show you how it looks. And that demonstration eliminates doubt and displays the clear intent of the manufacturer of the product. That is exactly how metaphor works when it comes to these examples of baptism. So with that in mind, let's go back to page 11. In both cases, the flood and the exodus are likened to baptism. In both, the people of God are to go through the water. The wicked and the sinful are buried in the water, and God's people have a new beginning or birth on the other side of the water. This leads Peter to make the statement that eight souls were saved by water. And the like figure, and that word figure is analogous to shadow, type, likeness, or metaphor. The like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us. Baptism is not simply an outward confession of an already existing faith. But baptism is faith intertwined with our works, subsequently producing authentic living faith. James made the statement, faith without works is dead. And so baptism is a beautiful illustration of how that operates. God then paints a vivid picture of baptism through the flood and the exodus, teaching that we must go through the water to be saved. In 1 Corinthians 10, he actually makes the statement that they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, fitting the John 3, 5 water and spirit paradigm, Acts 2, 38. They were all baptized unto Moses. 
Additionally, in Moses, he illustrates that we must go through water and be baptized unto a Redeemer who is clearly named and identified. Just as Israel was baptized unto Moses in the Exodus, we are baptized unto Jesus Christ, our New Testament Redeemer. As salvation was incomplete in both cases without water, so it is with how baptism doth also now save us. It is necessary. In conclusion, Scripture records the apostles baptizing by full immersion, orally invoking the name of Jesus. The history that survived the violent purges of religious orthodoxy shows that the early church practiced this as well. Using post-apostolic writers to bolster a post-apostolic doctrine requires one to selectively choose what seems to support one's biased views and forces one to overlook the other heretical elements that accompanied the original doctrine and its originator, often propagating obvious heresy and often accompanied by outright murder to contend for ever-shifting, morphing, evolving views of the kingdom of God they are not fit to use as precedent. Rather, allowing the scripture to simply and clearly speak for itself gives voice to the apostles' original intent. The mold was cast in the Old Testament. It was utilized in the New Testament through the vivid imagery of shadow and type. Burial with Christ, then, is a microcosm that precedes and anticipates our future burial and resurrection with him. That's the conclusion of the paper. That's not the conclusion of my remarks. <clears throat> I say that baptism is a microcosm. I didn't have the room to go into it for sake of limited space. But one day, every man, provided the Lord tarries, every man, woman, boy and girl is going to die. And the hope of Christianity is that we would die that we would be buried and that we would rise again. Baptism is part of that gospel message that we are a microcosm of that when we obey. We die in repentance. We are buried in baptism in Jesus' name. And we rise again when we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. If we do that now, we will do that then on that great day. Jesus modeled it. In his death, burial, and resurrection, we model it in our obedience to the gospel. And one day it won't be a model. It will be an event. I know that academia looks suspiciously to this kind of thinking. It's considered primitive. It's considered subjective. And it has been abused. But Scripture also teaches about a hidden wisdom that the apostles used to preach this gospel and the doctrine of baptism in Jesus' name included in that. That hidden wisdom was the kind that could be preached. The book of Psalms says that there is no language, there is no people where its voice is not heard. Paul uses the analogy of the seed in 1 Corinthians 15, that it would die, and that it would be buried, and that it would rise again, and it doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what culture you live in. A seed in all places, it falls to the ground and dies. It is buried, and it rises again. And it, one can scoff at that, 
But the truth is, this was a message given to fishermen. It was a message given to tax collectors. It was a message given in a third world society that is the hope of all mankind. And an over-reliance on academia and the arrogance of academia fought that message while simple men turned the world upside down. Friedrich Nietzsche hated the fact that issues of ultimacy and eternity were given into the hands of common men. But that's exactly who Jesus Christ chose. Everyone can understand that a seed must be buried. It must be buried. And the new life that comes up from that seed will speak to every language, every culture, and every era modeling the future resurrection that would come. So people have the gospel preached to them before they ever go to church by nature. God modeled it in nature, and he'll fulfill it at the resurrection. Baptism in Jesus' name is the New Testament model. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Urshan. We have uh, some time for questions and answers. I already see some hands being raised. This is good. I do have a couple of reminders that I've been asked to provide before we begin this uh, question period. Uh, first of all, in the interest of time and out of respect for the speaker who has the floor, we're asking that any additional input to questions that are asked only come from the speaker who is presenting. If you have anything to contribute to someone's question yourself, then we would invite you to approach them or connect with them following the conclusion of the session, and you guys can have a personal conversation at that time. Also, remember to keep your questions on topic. We do want, uh, because this is getting more and more interesting, more and more busy, and already filling up, and tomorrow will even be fuller, this is a good time to practice keeping our questions uh, relevant to the topic at hand. This evening is Jesus' name baptism. And also to keep your preliminary comments to your question uh, as brief as possible to where it only is giving the context that's required to ask the question. And that will help us all keep this moving along and keep us all on course with where we're trying to go. What a wonderful session we've had. And now with all of those reminders being said, let me also say we do want your questions. We are happy uh, for all of the questions that have been asked up to this point and looking forward to the questions that you will raise here. I saw a hand right there in the middle on the third row. You've done a tremendous job uh, on the biblical modality of baptism and the importance of invoking orally the name of Jesus in baptism. However, uh, it's come to my attention that quite a number of churches in an attempt to bridge the division between the Trinitarian formula, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the oneness formula in the name of Jesus Christ, which is the biblical one, they have been using a hybrid formula, which goes like, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son, which is Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit. So my question is twofold. Would you address your thoughts on that particular formula as a way of trying to unify the two camps? And second of all, had someone been baptized in that particular way, would they need to be rebaptized 
using only the name of Jesus in order to be saved? That's a very good question. <clears throat> if we're going to follow the idea of solo scriptura, that we are going to live our lives according to the example set by the apostles, I think the answer is very strongly that we are to not follow that practice. To include it, to try to bridge that gap, is to unwittingly fall into the trap of doing something the apostles never did. And the fact that there is no scriptural precedent for it should give anybody great cause for concern. The supremacy of the name of Jesus is the fullness of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It would be redundant to use those words. It would be dangerous, a dangerous precedent to set. Anytime we're going to alter the biblical pattern, we need to examine what we're doing and what our motives are. I would strongly say that baptism needs to be in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, the second part of your question, I do believe they would need to be rebaptized in the name of Jesus for the same reason. It is how the apostles administered it in their obedience. When they interpreted Matthew 28, 19, um, and they put it into practice, they chose to do it in Jesus' name. If we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, we should do likewise. Okay, further back. Thank you, Brother Shem. Um, I was just thinking, and uh, I, I was hesitant to ask this question, but I thought I should take this uh, opportunity. Baptism today, uh, I'm, I'm thinking, is it a primitive idea to go to the river side to baptize people, uh, since that is how it was done those days? Um, do, have you ever thought if there could be something not organic about baptizing in a bathtub or uh, like we do in baptistry that we create and put water in it today? And I was also thinking about this uh, modern way of baptism. This man whom uh, who, who the jailer who got baptized in the middle of the night after the jail was broken and the disciples did not flee. Um, where do you think he was baptized? Was it organic, that is, in the river, or it was the modern way, <laughs> somewhere in a pool, in a cistern, in his house, or something? I, I just need some clarification. Okay. Well, when it comes to baptism, sometimes they use phrasing like, in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Lord, or some other such terminology. With those variables given, the overarching continued theme is the name of Jesus. The repeated theme is the name. 
The Bible tells us that it's the name that saves us. If we try to say it would only be valid in a river because that's how they did it, well, then that means we can't use lakes. We can't use bathtubs. We can't use baptismals. The Bible does not address that. And so because the Bible does not, I do not think that it is a major concern. The overall theme is the name of Jesus. I have baptized in oceans, in hot tubs, in bathtubs, and many other formats. <laughs> I, I, will, I will stick with what Philip, uh, with the, what the eunuch told Philip. He said, here is water. What doth hinder? Okay, another one, uh, second row. Yes, I'm very much enjoying this. Thank you, Brother Urshan. Um, in connection with Brother Caleb's, Adam's question about rebaptizing someone that had used the dual mode, I guess you could call it. I wonder if behind that is um, in John 20, 23, whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Isn't there some importance in who does the baptizing? Meaning, in the one that Brother Adams used, who baptized them like that? Can just anybody baptize anybody? And that is my question. It's a very good question. And it's a tricky question. It's one that many people have come up against. We heard some hypothetical and some extreme examples given in some earlier sessions. I think that Jesus gave authority to them to do this. It is best to follow that precedent that people that have the authority to baptize in the name of Jesus Christ should baptize in the name of Jesus Christ. With that being said, and that's the pattern, the apostles did this, the disciples did this. We don't have a record of other people doing this. It's safest to stay with that pattern. But since the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of precedent, I guess in an extreme situation, there is an example of somebody in Acts 22 where Ananias comes and he tells, he tells him, he tells Paul, to arise and wash away thy sins, calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Perhaps in a setting in prison where nobody is available to do it, you're not legally allowed, or some other extreme circumstance where somebody received the revelation and didn't know anybody, um, we do have biblical precedent of what seems to be someone who called upon the name of Jesus themselves in that moment. So I would say that in an extreme situation when there's no alternative, perhaps you can do that in, for lack of a, another alternative. But if we're going to follow the vast majority of precedent in Scripture, then it was always done by someone who had been commissioned and given the authority to do it. Hello, Brother Urshan. I'll play the devil's advocate here. I got a question for you. It's twofold. So could it be said that this is just a play on semantics by the Pentecostal persuasion just to separate it from other faiths? And how would you explain eight souls saved by water when it was not done in Jesus' name? Okay. 
I do not think it's a play on semantics, and I think to even ask the question, for someone to ask that question, it's indicative that they are, they are unaware of Hebrew thought, because names carry great significance. If they didn't, we should still be calling Abraham Abram and calling it semantics. The name matters. It matters. And if it doesn't matter, then any name can be used, which is ludicrous. It doesn't follow log logically. So to ask that, to, to give arbor to that idea is to be unaware of the significance of names in Hebrew culture. And then just the, I mean, how can it be semantics when it's the only biblical pattern that there is? That's much more than semantics. It's the blueprint. Um, then when you pile on top of that the historical evidence that the first century church did it exclusively, no, it is not semantics. It is the original form of baptism. Um, Peter's usage of the word saved by water um, is obviously a reference. He calls it a figure. So it's not going to be exact. It's going to be what Paul described as the likeness. And so they were saved by water. And I believe it was Brother Bomeister that stated that Jesus Christ comes by spirit, water, and blood, and they bear witness on earth. Water is an integral part of salvation. And without water, a person can't be saved. It's part of the baptismal immersion. So um, Paul's using a metaphor. Rather, Peter is using a metaphor to describe how they were saved by water. Their, their Old Testament savior was Noah. In Paul's description in 1 Corinthians 10, there was water. They were saved by water. And there's even a stronger point that can be made there. You can even, if we're going to look at Paul's teaching on the Exodus as an example of salvation, which he does clearly give there, they're baptized unto Moses. Those are his words. So now they're baptized unto an Old Testament deliverer. You can even go through the Exodus and ask yourself, am I saved yet? So many feel that we're saved at repentance. That when you repent of your sins and make verbal confession that you're saved. Well, when Israel turned their back on Egypt and walk away, it is a, it's a kind of walking away from the world and from sin. Are they saved? They weren't. They're still under Pharaoh's jurisdiction. It's not until they went through the water and into the cloud, Pharaoh and his army are destroyed, that a person can say, now I am saved. And that physical metaphor is one of the most striking. It drives home the point that they were literally saved by water and spirit. And it eliminates the confusion of this verse says that, that verse says that. It is the exploded diagram of salvation next to the text of the New Testament. Okay, are we still at the back? I think right, right back here. <clears throat> I was just uh, thinking about the authority uh, of the one baptizing and uh, what do I have to authenticate that the person 
has the authority to baptize me. In Jesus' name. The same authority they had in the New Testament that the one doing the baptizing had themselves been baptized in Jesus' name and had received the gift of the Holy Ghost. When, when God sends someone to Paul, he doesn't randomly choose someone. Um, he chooses Ananias. He chooses a man endued with that authority, having gone through the new birth. And this is not without precedent. Um, there's, there's scriptural example of Jesus forbidding devils to speak in his name. They're saying things like, you're the Christ. And he tells them to hold their peace. Isaiah, he wants his lips purged with a hot coal so that he can then be sent to preach. So we have precedent of God choosing vessels that have been purified and commissioned. And so to answer your question, the New Testament paradigm is people who had been baptized and received the Holy Ghost, they did the baptizing and praying for people to receive the Holy Ghost. Still working our way back and we'll keep coming up. Reverend Nurse and I appreciate that presentation very much. I had a question uh, in reference to page number four where you talked about some of the sweeping historical revision eliminated, third paragraph, eliminated much of the known oppositional writing. I understand that you're talking about record there. But could you shed a little bit of light on why baptism was changed at that particular period? Absolutely. History shows us that at the Council of Nicaea, the formalization of the concept of Tertullian's Trinitas, it's adopted as church orthodoxy. Members are expelled. Uh, that, that were monotheistic, um, strict numerical monotheists, people who insisted on baptizing in the name of Jesus. And we see a marked increase in the idea of baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. That was just the tip of the iceberg. From there, it deteriorates into several extra-biblical doctrines. Um, and the sources, I don't have the sources with me. They're readily available. A simple Google search does pull them up, and I can provide them for anybody that wants them. Um, but inquisitional authorities, even Protestant authorities, um, were well known for running down oppositional writings. One example would be Sibelius. Um, Sibelius, they, they, they searched out all of his writings. We have no written record of what Sibelius did. All we have are the words of his enemies. And I thought one day, what in the world would people think if my enemies told the world about me? I would not like that. And so it's interesting that the volume of critics against him, it, the writings against him were voluminous. And they were vehement. They were so strong. And Tertullian 
even points out the fact that the majority of people in Christendom baptized in Jesus' name at that time and that they followed men like Sibelius. So they, they burned works. They, they say that victors get to write the history books. And so with imperial power of Rome behind them, they sought out and they destroyed. And so only heaven knows what was lost by, by those tribunals chasing down works and destroying them. Um, and there's many, many examples of it throughout history. So Nicaea is an example of that and following that all through the Dark Ages repeatedly. Any, uh, Michael Servetus is one of the greatest examples. Um, when John Calvin goes to work against him, he's killed, he's burned alive. Um, Christianisme Restitutio, his work on the restoration of authentic Christianity and uh, his contention was that Christianity had been corrupted by the papacy. Um, he wrote it. They sought it out. I think there's just a handful of those books left. They're worth many, many tens of millions of dollars, uh, the most valuable book in the world. And um, it's because inquisitional authorities and Protestant authorities tried to destroy them. So those are just two simple examples off the top of my head. I think we have a question here at the front. Thank you, brothers. Recently, I had a, a man that I was debating in Scripture, and he wanted to use the name Yeshua instead of Jesus. And uh, he wanted me to baptize him in the name of Yeshua, and I did not agree to do that. I said, I will only baptize in the name of Jesus. But... For the sake of our audience, could you expound on that, uh, what your feelings and thoughts are? Because, uh, of course, you know Yeshua goes back, and they say that was the original name and, and all that. Thank you. I can. Um, they, they refer to that as the sacred name movement, that there was one way of pronouncing his name. And the problem with that is it's not historically validated. There's a lot of question as to what that original pronunciation was. And if it's going to come down to how you pronounce a name, wow, there's some people with accents that are in serious trouble. <laughs> Probably chief among them, my great-grandfather, ADers. <laughs> heavy, heavy accent. <laughs> um, so it's not that I take a stand against baptizing in the name of Yeshua. I have a strong a feeling that we should not rebaptize people into the name of Yeshua because we baptize in the name of Jesus Christo um, and, and several other variations of the name of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that the anglicized version is the only way we can do it, but if it is the name of Jesus Christ, then that is, that is what is important. Okay, all the way over to our right. First of all, I would like to uh, thank, thank everyone involved in this conference, this meeting, um, and I, I thank you for um, what, what you've said tonight. I've recorded a number of nuggets that I don't even know if you were intentional, but nonetheless, um, they were definitely nuggets that I will continue to, uh, to chew upon. One of those was a thought that I was revisiting that I, I feel just really strongly about. Um, 
concerning baptism, when we're baptized, we become the bride of Christ. We take on the name. As, as, as people, when, when we get when we in church, when we get married, the bride takes on the name. And that's biblically. Um, it, it's a sacred union, the taking on the, the name. And I'm wondering if there's a correlation or a parallel, a likening of this modern idea of not taking on the name, the bride not taking on the name, likening it to the, in the churches where the name is not taking it on. And I'm wondering if that's a form of rebellion. Okay. <clears throat> it's a good question. I, I, would, I would say very strongly, yes, it is. It is rebellion against the name of Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, um, it, Jesus makes the statement that churches held fast to his name. And this is probably not popular with um, people who are antagonistic to the idea of metaphor, but Revelation is filled with metaphor. And there would be a harlot church that would arise and she would have daughters, and a, a prevailing theme among that religious dynamic would be that they would refuse the name, whereas the bride loves his name. So to answer your question, yes, I think it is a form of rebellion. Uh, we have time for a few more questions. We've got one here at the, the very back. Yes, brother. I was just wondering, uh, so what you were saying a little while ago was if you were baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, then you have the authority to baptize somebody. Is that correct? Is that what you said? I said that if a person is going to, to baptize, that they okay. need to be baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost. Oh, I thought you said that uh, that person had the authority. Don't they have the authority? Because well, they have the Holy Ghost. Well, when the scripture records it, they went everywhere. And he told them to lay hands on the sick. No, he told them to cast out devils. And, and they did. They did this in the name. So, so, yes, a person has the authority to baptize people in Jesus' name. Because uh, why I said that is because there's a gentleman over in Portland, uh, a young man that I was talking with about being baptized, and uh, nobody was there. And he said, well, Le he said, Leon, I want you to baptize me. So I took him down to a river, and I baptized him in Jesus' name. And... Uh, but sounds like I was being, I was valid doing that. Because yeah, I was, did yeah. have the, I was baptized in Jesus' name and I was filled with the Holy Ghost. Praise God. So, absolutely. Another question over here to my left. Thank you, Brother Urshan. Uh, just uh, back to Acts. Uh, 
uh, 22 there where Paul talked about uh, him uh, rising, calling on the name of the Lord. And uh, I believe there's more reference. There's another reference also to calling on the name of the Lord. And it, uh, there's, my question is, is uh, do we have precedent that the invoking of the name of Jesus was by the individual doing the baptizing, or was it the responsibility of the one who being baptized to confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, calling on the name of the Lord as an act of faith as to who they were being baptized in? I've just want, had that question. Okay. Well, the way it's traditionally done today is that the person who is doing the baptizing invokes the name of Jesus over them. And there is precedent for that kind of language, that name by which ye are called. So it seems very strong in an evidential way that a person spoke that name over them. Now, we do have the account where it was stated that way. It's a little, it's not the majority. It's, it's a, a, seems to be a, an isolated kind of an instance, but it is there. And so I can't say that it can't be done that way. Uh, what seems important is the oral invocation of the name of Jesus Christ. We don't do it today by and large in a modern sense, but if I were left with no alternatives, I would certainly want the name of Jesus orally invoked over me. Hey, uh, I think there's a question over here on my right. So for the sake of those listening that have not the opportunity to ask this question, would you address... Um, why you insist that baptism is essential for salvation while hanging on the cross, Jesus pardoned the thief who was crucified with him and that forgiveness was granted without baptism. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, baptism in the name of Jesus and the infilling of the Holy Ghost is a New Testament dynamic. And every person in the New Testament that will enter the kingdom of God will come in that way. The same way that every person that came out of Egypt went through the water and into the spirit, into the cloud. And in Noah's day, every person went through the water to be saved. Now, the reason why the thief on the cross does not apply is found in Hebrews chapter 9, where the writer tells us that a testament is of force after men are dead. And then it uses stronger language. It says it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Jesus pardoned him in a sovereign act while he was still alive. And the last will and testament did not come into effect until after he was dead. So the thief on the cross eked in by sovereign mandate. We're uh, approaching, approaching the end of our limit. We've got probably time for maybe two or three more questions if there are any more questions on the floor. There's one right here at the back. 
<clears throat> given the recent uh, translations, Nestle Allen, uh, the Greek text, uh, what's your feeling about uh, the ESV and ASV uh, using older manuscripts uh, that are different than the King James, for instance, Acts 10, where Peter says in the ESV and in ASB that he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the King James just says the name of the Lord. And uh, I was curious what your thoughts were on those two uh, scholarly works. <clears throat> I have read that. I have read where Acts 10, it does include the name Jesus in other translations. And King James obviously does say the name of the Lord. Um, there are going to be differences. There are going to be different ways of interpreting and different interpreters included various elements that some translations won't include. Um, I think there's some that leave out portions in 1 John 5 and uh, there's even some that have gone so far as to reword Matthew 28, 19, feeling that Eusebius, uh, where they feel that that was requoted, he quoted it differently, um, giving much stronger emphasis to the name of Jesus Christ. Um, and they felt that there was a bit of a liberty taken there. At the end of the day, um, I have chosen to use the King James Version um, just because of its reliability and having stood the test of time. So sometimes in Acts 10 is a perfect example of it. They'll choose to include that name of Jesus. And it does seem from their research that it originally was there. So I don't think it discredits the King James Version. It's just it was one of those things the translators chose to either include it or, or not include it. But I, I do stand next to the King James Version, and um, I use that, which is another discussion in and of itself. That's much more exhaustive than this time would allow. But there is fascinating study on it. Um, one question down here at the front. <clears throat> um, Eugene Johnson from Wisconsin. You, um, when we baptize in Jesus' name, the belief is that the blood of Jesus is applied because he died on the cross, rose again. So that sacrificial blood applied in baptism. Now, you know that was, I'm really not asking for debate, but I'm just asking you to, just for the clarification for baptism in Jesus' name. You, I believe it's in, in the book of John chapter 4 when it talks about Jesus baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus baptized not but his disciples. Mm -hmm. So Jesus had not died then. Mm -hmm. So the first question is, do you believe that they were baptized in Jesus' name? If, you, if they were, uh, was the blood applied which had not been shed? then uh, did they need to be 
baptized after the cross. You know what I'm saying? I do. Yes. I understand the question. So could you clarify? I'll do my best. I, I can speak where the scripture speaks, and it does not tell us how they were baptized. So to try to say how they were would be conjecture. But Jesus obviously gave them authority to baptize. And somebody had to perform the first baptism. Obviously, he chose his disciples. He handpicked them. How he baptized, what was spoken over them during that time, the Bible really doesn't say. So I don't know that I can definitively say what was spoken over them at that time. Whether or not that meant they needed to be rebaptized after because the blood had not been applied, once again, would be conjecture on my part. The Bible doesn't record them. Um, how, how it all played out. You know, did, did Peter baptize John and then John turn around and baptize Peter? It doesn't really say how it happened. The strength of the baptism in Jesus' name according to Acts 2.38 is the repentance of those who, repenting of their sins, one of the sins was unbelief, then there are those who crucified Jesus and he became the lamb. While he was alive, before he died, he wasn't the lamb yet slain, right? So the strength that we believe in water baptism in Jesus' name is that the lamb slain became the sacrifice and his death. So we took on his death in water baptism, as you said earlier. So, uh, so just like the thief on the cross uh, was commuted prior to death and burial, so I'm, so, so I'm just saying it. So I'm just saying, carrying the thought forward, that uh, this is why we apostolics so strongly believe that um, the the because Jesus shed the blood in His name. That's why His name mm -hmm. is invoked, and water baptism post crucifixion. So then. Uh, those who lived up to the knowledge that was available to them, just like the disciples of John in Acts chapter 19, if they had died with no knowledge of Jesus' baptism, you know what I'm saying? In chapter say that, 19. Say that, say that last part again. If those who in Acts chapter 19 had died with no knowledge of Jesus' baptism, mm -hmm. then we believe they lived up to the knowledge that was available to them at the time because the gospel hadn't reached them. And so therefore, they lived up to the knowledge by faith because they were baptized unto, mm -hmm. you know, all right. So all I'm saying is that when you match the two, that we apostolics believe that so strongly that why you must be baptized in the name of the crucified, the Lord and risen Lord, 
because that gives strength to the power of the application of the blood in the baptism experience and so forth. So I guess I sort of mixed it up a little bit when I brought in John's disciples because again, uh, see, what I was doing is for those who were baptized by Jesus or his disciples prior to his death, the question is if they still were alive after crucifixion, must they now be baptized in his name so that the blood could be applied? I guess that's part I of the question. I see. I would answer that in two parts. First of all, um, the Bible is not explicit as to how Jesus and his disciples' baptism operated before his death. Um, what we do know is that after his death is that every man, every human, is to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We also have an example of Jesus making the statement where he looks at his disciples, he breathes, breathes upon them, and he says, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Many people feel that's where they got the Holy Ghost. Um, that is not in keeping with what the Bible teaches. You know, in John chapter 7, I believe it is, he says that the Holy Ghost was not yet given, Jesus was not yet glorified. So in holding with that idea, it would be important, seemingly, that they would be baptized in the name of Jesus, and then they would also receive the gift of the Holy Ghost in the church age. Now, with reference to the disciples of John dying before they'd been baptized in Jesus' name, having lived up to the knowledge that they knew and had perhaps not received the full gospel yet, Paul hadn't reached them yet, uh, what would have happened to them? You know, there is a doctrine that is very prevalent today that is known as the light doctrine, that you simply walk in the light that you have and you'll be saved. It's a very dangerous doctrine. Uh, and I, there was one elder preacher who said, if greater knowledge means greater accountability, then we need to recall all of the missionaries right now. Stop preaching because you're condemning everybody. Um, so every, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl in the New Testament age must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in keeping with John 3, 5, except a man is born of the water and born of the spirit. The light doctrine is a very dangerous doctrine. And um, the New Testament supports that you must be born of the water and born of the spirit. I think we'll take the last question from the very back. There, this way, and then we'll we'll wrap it up there. Uh, Brother Russian, thank you for that scholarly presentation. In in light of uh, the scripture that a lot of people have used in uh, Romans chapter ten and verse nine, that says, "If thou shalt confess with thy mouth," I know a lot of um teaching around that which tries to negate the necessity of baptism so for, for the sake of the listeners can you please elaborate on that please yes I can Romans 10 is a classic example of looking at the early church through the eyes of commentary and erroneous teaching and it's a it's a 
a popular new doctrine that if you make a verbal confession with your mouth, you're saved. Because the Bible does say that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It does say that. Um, and if you're coming at the scripture without the precedent of the book of Acts, you might draw that conclusion. They call it the Roman road. That's what they call it. And we don't look at it at all from that perspective. We're coming from the book of Acts perspective. There is no recorded example of anybody making a verbal confession with their mouth and being saved in the Bible. It does not happen. What we do have is you must be born of the water and born of the spirit um, and the, the template of the book of Acts. Now, if we look at Romans 10, not superimposing a modern doctrine of verbal confession, but if we look at it through the book of Acts, then we come up with a different interpretation. And in the book of Acts, they, were, they repented of their sins, they were baptized in the name of Jesus, and then they did make a verbal confession with their mouth when they spoke with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives the utterance. Now, Romans 10 is a writing to the church, not to the, to the world, not to people who have no context, but these are people who every single one of them have received the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with tongues. So when, you, when Paul says that you would confess with your mouth, that's exactly what they did as the Spirit gave the utterance. Not only that, in Romans, or rather Acts 2, we quote Joel often, um, but there's another prophet quoted in Acts 2 when they ask, what does this mean? Are they drunk? They, they, Peter uses the template of David found in Psalms chapter 16. And he makes the statement that that might, and forgive me if I get the wording a little wrong, but in essence it was, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. And it's a beautiful example of how you can believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Further than that, in Romans chapter 8, Paul gives a great additional description of what happens when a person receives the Holy Ghost when it says that, that the spirit of adoption would come down and his spirit would bear witness with our spirit and we would cry, Abba, Father. So Romans 8 precedes Romans 10 and he's setting the stage of describing how a person would receive the Holy Ghost. They do confess with their mouth and they do believe in their heart when they speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. It's great. Uh, with apologies, we'll just take this one, one more question. We'll try to squeeze this in and then we'll wrap it up from here. Thank you, Brother Urshan. Question on Matthew twenty-eight nineteen: If a congregation is baptized... Uh, with the variation of Matthew twenty eight nineteen, with the intent of understanding that it points to Jesus, must they be rebaptized? If you can please expound on that one more time. Yes, they must be rebaptized. Uh, intention is great, but we're saved by His Word, and the apostles baptized in the name of Jesus. So, if we have example here of people that had great intent and great understanding, but it was simply incomplete. So Priscilla and Aquila take 
Apollos aside, they explain the word of God more perfectly unto him. Paul comes along and John's disciples know only the baptism of John. Their intent was there. It was honest. It was pure. It was upright. But Paul does not leave them in their incomplete state. Um, an argument could be made about Cornelius as well. Um, he's devout. He fears God with all his house. He prays always. He gives alms. And his prayers are even memorials before God. But God does not leave him in that state. But he sends an angel. In Acts 10, uh, it records it as saying, Call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter, lodges with one Simon, uh, the tanner by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. But Acts 11 uses stronger wording uh, when he recounts it to the council. Uh, he says that the angel came and said, he will, Peter will tell you words by which thou and all thy house might be saved. So, yes, they need to be rebaptized in Jesus' name, just like John's disciples needed with their good intention. They still needed to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It is his name that saves us. Thank you, Pastor Urshan. Thank you.